Hello and welcome to the New to Canada podcast, the show to ease your expat overwhelm and be inspired by other newcomers' stories. I am your host, Kate Johnson, and I made the big move from England to Canada in 2017 after falling in love with a Canadian. Join me as I chat with fellow expats and share their unique challenges, triumphs and revelations as they build their new lives here. It's great to have you. For many, 2020 has been a year for major career re-evaluation. We spend a huge chunk of our lives working and we are now increasingly striving for that perfect marriage between what we love doing, what the world needs and what can be monetized. Enter this episode's guest, Nada Buhendi, a career coach originally from Bahrain who moved to Ontario 19 years ago. Because these are like childhood things that are ingrained. That I, that I want to make a ton of money, that that's the only way to be successful, that's all that matters in life. As long as you have a good job, you know, as long as you're making a ton of money, then you're successful. And it took me a while to realize that that's not the definition of success. Definition of success is, is, is based on what you want and what you love. And in order to get that fulfillment, you need to utilize your gifts and your gifts are the, the things that come to you easily and naturally and what the world needs. In this episode, Nada shares her story of growing up in a dysfunctional family and how she broke the cycle to pursue education abroad as a free woman. We chat about how career passion cannot be found but instead developed and Nada inspires us to confront childhood trauma and build a solid career path to fulfillment. Let's start the show. Welcome Nada, it's so good to meet you. Thank you so much for having me here. So I have been practicing all day because... I refuse to say Bahrain like everybody else and I was watching this YouTube video over and over again because I want to run it by you and I've been really excited to see if I'm going to say it right. Okay, <laughs> let's let's do this. Okay, oh, the pressure is on. Is it Bahrain? Bahrain. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. You have good. to roll the yeah. R and then there's like a ha, huh, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of like you're you're panting like a dog. It's it's Bahrain. Bahrain. Yeah. You got yes. it. You got it. <laughs> Good job. Woo-hoo, 10 out of 10. Amazing. Okay, so I'm just going to keep saying that. And if you hear me say Bahrain or something, just, I don't know, we'll have to have a buzzer or something that you hit. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So you spent the first 18 of years of your life in Bahrain and then 19 years in Canada. So Canada has now overtaken your native country. How does that feel? It feels good. And it's a little scary because I'm starting to, uh, you know, age myself. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting feeling. I, I still feel like I represent both worlds. Right, yeah. You never really have that one identity anymore as soon as you move abroad, right? Like, there's always kind of your split. Yeah, and it's a valuable thing to have the best of both worlds integrated into your identity. And you get to choose the things that you want to bring into your life and the things that you want to let go. Oh, that's really true. Yeah, you can pick the best parts of of all the things you love uh, about the people and the culture. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine that feeling very strange. Like I'm still in the single digits for years spent here, right? So it must make you yeah, proud to look at Canada as being your home for so long and, and for shaping who you are over all that time. Okay, so let's chat a little about Bahrain. You sent me so much information about it and saved me the research, which was so kind of you. (laughs) I found it really interesting, the the fun facts that you sent through. Um, Yeah, probably the size surprised me the most. It's a very small island. Yes, it is about um, 780 square kilometers, Uh which is 300 square miles for you know, our friends from the US. (laughs) Yeah. And England. (laughs) Yes, and England. And and to put this in perspective, you know, Toronto is about 630.2 square kilometers. So it's slightly bigger than Toronto. Imagine that going from a country that's almost the size of a city. Yeah. Canada is huge. I always think that the UK where I'm from is so tiny in comparison to Canada. But then I looked it up and Bahrain is only 0.31% of the UK size. 
So that is just, it's so tiny. That's awesome. Yeah. And for those who don't know where it's located, it's in the Persian Gulf and the neighboring countries are Saudi Arabia, UAE. Mm-hmm. And some fun facts is that Michael Jackson spent almost a year living there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what's the landscape like? It looks visually stunning when you search on Google Images, like really breathtaking. It is a very nice country. However, it has a desert climate. Okay, so you don't really experience it. You look from the window. It's so pretty. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of it's it's like the other extreme, whereas here it's it's brutally cold and in um uh, Bahrain, it's it's pretty hot, like scorching temperatures, 50 degrees Celsius in the summer. Wow. And then I guess you just have like really mild winters. So that's probably the best time to, to get out and, and see the city properly. Definitely. I would say between December and, and February, those are really good months to visit. Cool. What do you recommend for, for visitors if they were to, to pay it a visit? What, what should we check out? Gosh, um... I guess it was a while ago. <laughs> it, is, it is a while ago. It's it's really hard for me to kind of recommend mm-hmm. anything that is current. However, the last time I visited, you know, just checking out some of the tourist attractions, like they have a cool Formula One racetrack oh, for yeah? those, you know, adrenaline junkies. And the food is absolutely amazing. Nothing comparable to what I've experienced in Toronto when it comes to the Middle Eastern cuisine, the Indian cuisine, um, Chinese food is, is also really good over there. Yeah. Oh, I love Chinese food. Wow. Yeah, you've got a big mix of cultures, I guess, coming in. So yeah. Wow. Tell us a bit about the food. What's your favorite food? Um, I'm going to be nostalgic and say some of the stuff that my mom used to make. There is this breakfast dish that she would make. It's it's really hard to describe, but it's basically imagine vermicelli noodles that are sweet with scrambled eggs. I know it sounds so strange, but Ooh. it's really good. I, that was one of my favorites. For breakfast, yeah, yeah. I can see it. Mm, you yeah. get the carbs and you get the protein. And the sweetness, yeah. And the sweet and salty, which is my thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Salted caramel chocolate then. You're a fan like me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> Great. So what do you miss most about Bahrain then? You, the food probably, I guess. Well, there is the food and then there's an element of culture. You know, it's it's... When I was born, and I don't know how it is right now, the country has a tradition of generosity and hospitality. It's a very warm place. Um, Whenever you hear people from small cities talk about how they leave their doors unlocked. Yeah. That's really the culture that I was raised in. Just trust and safety and... Trust and safety. And if you're walking on the street, you know, you're not worried about your safety. Um... If you are in trouble, if you have a flat tire, you know, people will stop to help you. Oh, wow. People who don't really know you will approach you and help you if you need something. Whereas, you know, living in a big city environment like New York City or Toronto, um, sometimes you see people who are injured or homeless people on the street and people will just walk away and, and not stop. And... That to me was a bit of a thing that I had to get used to, um, something that I had to develop as someone who was coming in at the age of 18, developing the ability to ask for help. Mm, Because that was something that I didn't have to do when I was over there. That is interesting. What a what a tough thing to have to learn, yeah. Because you'd you'd have to struggle for a long time before you realized you had to ask, right? Yeah, I learned that I had to speak up, that I needed to identify exactly what I needed help with, and also the way I would ask, where it's not imposing or needy or um, making anyone feel uncomfortable. That is a skill that I had to develop, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think. It would be easy to, to think if no one's coming to help me, then I must be being, you know, overdramatic or, you know, maybe I don't warrant the, the help quite yet. Yeah, there's a whole layer to that that you'd have to really get to grips with. Yeah, it's a different mentality. And even, let's say, from a job perspective over there, um, you know, because it's such a small city, you would be talking to a friend and then that friend would tell their friends and then that's how you find a job and it was such a informal way of of 
talking about what it is that you need. But I learned that when you're in the North American culture, you need to be more specific about what it is that you want. And you need to ask gradually. Right. Right? Like you need to warm people up and build that connection and trust before you ask them. Because sometimes what happens is when we ask people for something and they cannot help us, they feel bad and they feel uncomfortable or they feel like it's too much work for them. So you have to position it the right way so that it becomes more of an exchange of energy and exchange of love rather than imposing on the person. Yeah. And then I think there's an interesting element as well where you see these people's lives on online now where they've just got there on their own right and it's this whole thing that should be celebrated that they've got there and um to to ask for help you don't see other people doing that necessarily so uh yeah it's almost like a weakness to to have to ask for help but it shouldn't be and i guess when you build that connection it's 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 much more normal to to be able to ask for it yeah so Let's dive a little into your childhood and, and what led you to, to move to Toronto, uh, if you don't mind. It, it's a very sensitive, uh, but an inspiring story. Um, and I'd love for you to, to share that with us. Yeah, I'm totally happy to share that. Um, one, because I'm no longer that child anymore. And two, I feel that there are a lot of people who suffer in silence and a lot of the stuff that happens in our childhood ends up impacting our adulthood. And it creates a lot of dysfunctions. And until we are aware of those things, that's when we end up growing and overcoming them and achieving what it is that we want to do. So it's definitely something that I am openly sharing because I, I do not want you know people to suffer in silence and I want to empower them to get the right help and to reach their goals. So I've always been proud of being a Bahraini citizen. I obviously love, you know, my country of origin. I love the culture. I think it's a really great place to live. Um, however, I was in an unfortunate situation where I was, um, you know, part of a very dysfunctional family. Growing up, you know, my father was an alcoholic and he was not able to get the help he needed. Um, we did not have a lot of support networks like we have here in North America. Therapy wasn't a huge thing. In fact, it was something that was more um, stigmatized. Especially for men as well, even here, even. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's still it's still somewhat stigmatized here, but over there it was even worse, especially at the time that I was growing up, you know, about 18 years ago. So I spent most of my childhood basically playing the role of a caregiver, whether it was for my sister, whether it was for my mom. And um, I knew that the only way that I could break from that cycle is if I moved out and I started myself in a new, my life in a new country. My mom she wanted to get out of her own dysfunctional family by basically rushing into marriage. Um, because at that point in time, it was actually very frowned upon for single women to live alone. Mm -hmm. You would either have to, you know, live with your family until you get married, or you would have to get married. And I didn't want to do either. And growing up and attending a North American school, um, being educated in a, an American system, I learned about the culture and I learned the amount of freedom that I would get if I lived in that culture. So that was my dream. I wanted to be an independent woman and I didn't want to be looked down on. And that was the reason why I moved to Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just, I'm in awe of your strength. And yeah, I really respect you for, for saying, you know, at the beginning that you, you've always been proud of, of being a Bahrainian citizen. You know, it would be so easy to, to reflect those negative experiences that you had onto the country that, that you were in and associate that struggle with the place, right? But, but instead, you, you, you can still look lovingly on, on where you were born. That's, that's really powerful. Absolutely. And I know that the culture has evolved so much from the time I left to this moment, because when I speak to my mom, she tells me about all of these 
you know, um, women who now live alone. And, and I, I look at my own classmates from high school and some of them are still single and they're happy and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But just at that particular point in time, when I was growing up, that that's how it was. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how early on you made that realization that getting out to, to Northern America would, was your route out? Oh, gosh, it was as young as the age of maybe nine, where I would write in my diary, I would literally say this, I would say one day, you know, I'm going to be living by myself, you know, in my own house, and I wouldn't have a father who's, you know, walking in and, and having a tantrum because he's, you know, under the influence. And I won't have to deal with that. And I'll be happy. And I won't have to hide in my bathroom, you know, doing my assignments and tears. Those were things that I actually wrote in my diary. I wish I still had them. Me too. (laughs) It's just an astounding level of of awareness at such a young age and like understanding your situation and surroundings. And like you mentioned, you know, looking at your mother and and her decisions and and knowing that, you know, what it will take to change your path and, and different from hers so yeah wow I I applaud you for that that's amazing absolutely and I knew that my mom was doing the best that she could do at that point in time there were some there were a lot of you know restrictions from a religious standpoint from a uh, legal standpoint in terms of separation and divorce and what you can do and can't do as a woman Mm -hmm. and she felt that maybe it, it it was better to stay in the relationship because she didn't want us to to you know, suffer from the society stigma um, growing up without a father. So that is really the best she could do. And I respect that. It's, it's you know, you don't get a manual when you're a parent. No. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of what is the right or wrong thing. And you can't predict how that impacts your kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you realized that that education would be would be a great route to to go and, and, and realize your dream. So you you worked so hard and you ended up getting uh, was it a scholarship or you you ended up going to Toronto right at 18 years old? Well, my story was a bit of a roundabout story. Mm-hmm. So I did not get a scholarship, unfortunately, but um, I was blessed in that my mom, despite her going through what she went through, she made sacrifices for us. And she was the breadwinner in a way, because my dad, you know, suffered from some issues and didn't do well in his business. Mm. She said, I could get you guys to live very comfortably. But then you would not have the education that would give you the opportunities to go abroad and study and improve your life. And she recognized you know, the importance of me leaving and getting out and breaking out of the cycle. She sensed it in a way. Mm-hmm. And you had a sister, a younger sister, right? Yeah, she was She was born when I was nine years old. It was, you know, a nine-year age gap. So imagine, you know, being a, almost like playing the role of a single mom and trying to put two girls through into private school. And private schools over there are not cheap. We were literally getting our clothes from the thrift store, used clothes, in order to survive. So we, had, we, ha- we knew we had to make sacrifices. Um, it was either education or live comfortably. And we collectively agreed, yes, education, we want to get out of this situation. Right. And then the pressure, I, did you feel that then, going to the school that you were going to and you knew the sacrifices your, your mother was making and the financial strain and, you know, no pressure, you have to get the grades to, to make it all worth it? I can't imagine. It was a lot of weight on my shoulders because I carried a lot of guilt within me that I, was, that, w- that I was putting my mom through this and she had to make these sacrifices for us. And I felt a huge responsibility on me to succeed. So I took the most difficult, you know, classes in high school and um, I helped her with her business at the same time. It was just a lot to juggle. I was taking, you know, classes that were pretty much at the university level. Mm, Wow. In in fact, they were so difficult that in my first year of university, it was just a breeze because I pretty much did all these classes in high school. Did you have any sort of career path set in your mind? You're just taking all the classes and and trying to get as much education as you could. I was a very well-rounded person. And I feel that 
you know, I did have interests when I was, uh, you know, helping my mom build her business. Um, my, I was, I was there as a little kid, you know, distributing flyers with my mom. I grew up trying to balance between these insane, you know, um, high school classes and trying to do my SATs and get into university and working on a thesis, you know, as part of my program, um, to helping her run her business, literally, like I would help her with her operations, I would help her with her marketing. And um, yeah, it was really hard. What do you think about that when it comes to almost, it's more like a Western parenting, I don't want to, you know, generalize, but they they protect their children and they and they you know you want to provide the best for them and you and you almost want to make it as easy as possible for them as well I know some parents probably do you know push them out their comfort zone make them get a little job or something but it's nowhere near like you know help mum and dad run their business and you're in charge of this and at such a young age and do you think that that's that's a really beneficial childhood to to set you up for success as an adult or or do you think that hindered you in some way as well I'd I'd love to know I don't regret what I went through because it helped me learn a lot. Mm-hmm. You mature really fast, I'm sure. I did mature very fast. And seeing the amount of sacrifices that my mom did for me was good and bad. It was good because it pushed me to succeed. And I do believe that what motivates, motivates us the most sometimes is pain. You don't go to a doctor unless you're suffering from a lot of pain. Most people don't go to a doctor just to do their checkups or just to say, hi, I want to make sure there's nothing wrong with me. We go there after we cannot bear the pain that we're dealing with. So what I was dealing with was extreme pain. It was the pain of seeing my mom, you know, going through physical and emotional abuse um, as a result of my father's alcoholism It was me suffering and being impacted from it. It was my sister being impacted by it. And it was pushing me to find a way to help them get out of the situation. The childhood that I went through, I don't regret because it has put me in a position where I am a driver and I'm motivated. And my mom used to use this analogy and say, I'm not worried about you. If you want to get something, you'll use your bare hands and you'll <laughs> you're able to to use your 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 hands to basically break a rock if that's what it's take. Uh, and and I think when you are put in these extreme situations of pain, instinct your animal instincts kick in where it's survival, right? And I had to help my mom and my sister. However, the only way I could do that is if I left the situation I, and I could do it from abroad. Was that a financial goal then? You wanted to go abroad, get the education, you know, get financially stable and then send funds back to them? How did you see the support coming from you? It, it was not a financial um, thing because, you know, my mom, you know, was, was making, was, she, she was an established business owner. She has sufficient, you know, funds to support herself. She's always been that way. She never needed anyone. I mean, she supported my dad. She still does. Um, it was more of a empowerment and being a role model, as weird as that sounds, and just building your life and and giving them options. Showing them that it's possible. Yeah. That it's possible. Or even if, if it's not even physically getting them out of there, but showing them it's possible to set boundaries. Yeah. Have, do you think you've achieved that? Have you seen, you know, the situation improve over there with your father? And, and what's your sister doing now? She is over there right now. And she is, um, you know, helping my mom with her business. And she found her passion. I helped her with that. Oh, good. Um, and I guess, you know, <laughs> my career coaching instincts were already kicking in at that point. She went through a long journey of trying to figure out what her career spot was. There were pressures around, you know, following my footsteps, going into the scientific route. But I saw her as an artist. And um, 
I helped her monetize that and I helped her get the clarity into becoming an art director. Wow. What a good sister to have. <laughs> yeah, it's all about surrounding yourself with the people that are going to be your cheerleaders, right? It sounds so cheesy, but you, you sometimes need someone to say, you know, no, this is your strength. This is your strength. Yes, you can do it. Yes, it's possible. Um, yeah, it sounds like you were that, you were that person for, for your family. That's, that's amazing. So. Yeah. Yeah, so you headed off to Toronto then at 18. Um, I bet that was really tough to, to leave your mother and sister behind. Um, how old was your sister at the time that you left? So I first landed in Kingston, not Toronto, and I went to Queen's University into engineering school. My sister was about nine years old at that point in time. It was a very difficult decision because we were very close I was close with my sister. I was also close with my mom. Think like if you've ever seen the show Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yeah, Lorelai. <laughs> yeah. Lorelai and Rory. My mom was Lorelai and I was Rory. So we were oh, wow. extremely close. And, and leaving was extremely difficult. But we all knew that that's what I had to do. And I was very lucky to, to have her support me financially and pay for my tuition when I was in uh, university. And I was extremely lucky that she trusted me to go there on my own because that was, you know, also difficult. I mean, it's already difficult, even from North American standards, to just let your kids, you know, send them off and, and just hope that they'll be okay, especially if it's a completely different culture. Uh, from a Middle Eastern standpoint, having an 18-year-old woman, you know, leave on her own, that was unheard of. And in fact, some of my high school classmates were held back and were not allowed to, you know, seek education abroad for those reasons. Mm -hmm. It's a very conservative culture. It's very protective of women, in a sense. And uh, for her to trust me, I'm, I'll always be grateful for that. Oh, gosh, I can remember. Yeah, the, the gratitude for sure. And then, yeah, the... It was obviously the time that you had to be selfish in a good way. What was it like when you first landed and, and was kind of thrown into this culture? I remember when I first landed in Kingston, I had these humongous suitcases that I could <laughs> barely carry. I was very awkward and <laughs> I was just looking for someone to help me you know, Aww. get those suitcases in my room. And, you know, I come from a culture where you you have nannies and you grow up with, you know, um, help around you. Whereas in the North American culture, I mean, heck, just do your own <laughs> chores, you know? <laughs> stuck in, yeah. you're, you're not a celebrity. Clean your own stuff and wash your own stuff and, and and it's a completely different mindset. So I'm this little naive girl who's used to having, you know, nannies and, and, and babysitters and people pushing my carts. And now all of a sudden I have to, you know, figure out how to push my suitcases by myself. There were like 100, <laughs> 100 pound suitcases. Yeah. Like if I knew I was going to carry them myself, I would have packed lighter. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I was used to having my mom, you know, drive me everywhere there was no such thing as walking for 15 or 20 minutes to go to the grocery store. We'd always drive there. My mom would drive me there. So I had horrible spatial orientation skills. And oh, yeah. <laughs> at that point, we didn't have Google Maps. That's so funny. And I was walking around with a paper map. Oh, my God. Trying to figure out. Actually, I, I didn't even have a map. That's a sad thing because I didn't even know how to read a map. I mean, I almost failed geography in high school. But I, I was lucky to find a couple of um, Japanese students who were very organized and had a map. And I just followed them. Um, so that we can figure out how to get to the main campus and go to the International Student Center. And I, and I remember that was my first day in Kingston. Just so much independence all at once, like in every aspect of your life. Just, there you go, let's go. Yeah, it was, it was very tough for me, um, settling into Queens. Queens is a great school. Engineering is a good program. But the truth is, it just wasn't the right fit for me. It was a huge culture shock for someone coming from an environment where 
drinking is prohibited. Right. So social drinking wasn't a thing over there. And here I am surrounded by engineers who love drinking <laughs> and who were dyeing themselves in purple because that was the engineering tradition when you come in in Frosh Week and banging on cafeteria tables and chanting, we are, we are, we are, we are the engineers. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. <laughs> and it was very triggering for me because growing up with a father who is alcoholic, it almost made me retreat into my shell and not and want to avoid all kinds of social interactions because they all involve drinking. And I didn't know how I fit into that world. And did you, you must have associated drinking males with, you know, aggression and, and all of those experiences that you had. And how long did it take for you to, to trust that environment? And It took me a long time. And um, I, the biggest, I guess, epiphany that I got was that I was using my academics as an escape to survive the situation that I was dealing with at home as a child with my dad. Um, and I realized that I was doing and taking subjects that I wasn't even that interested in, just as a way to survive, to keep myself from getting bored, to hide, to keep myself motivated. And when that alcoholism was taken away, when I was in, in a place where I was you know, not having to deal with that, all of a sudden I had to confront it. And I fell into a deep depression where I started skipping my classes. I didn't want to wake up. I was putting on weight. Um, I had absolutely no idea what to do. And I knew that I had to pass. I knew, to, I, knew I had to have good grades because there was no way that I'd want to go back home right I was going to say that that wasn't an option if you you know you're you're regretting your decision to to study and you weren't happy there there was no option in your mind to to go back at that point yeah and I was carrying a lot of guilt because my mom you know already spent a ton of money for me to be there um so I I started speaking up and I went to see uh, therapists within the university. I went, I went to see counselors. I went to the international student office. I talked to many people about what I was going through. I was very open about it. But the sad thing is that I was placed in a box of you have a mental illness and you're suffering from depression and this is a genetic thing. And I was just being labeled instead of being given solutions. Right. And that was very frustrating for me. Exactly, yeah. So do you think it all came from, it's, it's almost like an overwhelm, right? Because you've, you've gone from having a very, very solid reason for wanting to throw yourself into education and throw yourself into all of these things to avoid the home and, and to keep yourself busy in a way. And now you're in a place where you don't really have that reason anymore. So it's like, okay... What am I going to do now? There's so many options on the table and I don't have to do this that I've been doing all of these years of my life. Was, was that really the crux of it, that you, would, you were just kind of crushed with all the possibilities? I realized that I was living my life to make others happy rather than mm. myself. And as much as it is important to help people, if you do not start with putting the oxygen mask on yourself and finding that happiness within, then you're not going to be effective towards others. But I think the first helpline that I got was when I walked into a doctor's office, and I still remember her. Her name is Meredith McKenzie. She saved, she was the first person to save my life. Oh, wow. I remember walking in with this heavy backpack and complaining about my back. And at that point, I kid you not, I was being put on three different types of medica medication. And I remember walking into her office and saying, you know, my back really hurts. And she takes one look at me and starts laughing. And she says, you're, at, you're telling me that your back hurts and you have this heavy backpack and you're hunched over. Don't you think that that's what's causing your back to hurt? <laughs> <laughs> and it made me crack up because here I am talking to a person who's also asking me questions and trying to find the root cause rather than just trying to send me home with a quick fix. 
Yeah, no back pain meds. It's like, what is the actual reason behind your back pain? Wow, yeah, that's really cool. And working with her, she dug deeper and she said, well, why do you feel depressed? And I said, well, I don't like engineering. And she said, well, maybe then why are you in engineering? Why don't you just change your major? Why don't you find another university that jives with you? <laughs> she sounds amazing. Just like straight to the point, like, duh. Like, what is, like, why is this taking you so long to realize? It's so simple and, when you put and, it like that. The crux of all of this, this is what it is in life, is that we tend to overcomplicate things and we look for fancy formulas and but it's the simple things that that we need to follow the the mo- the simplest things and and the grounded things that change our life mm. the things that are common sense um and listening to her led me to basically explore Montreal and take a visiting class at Concordia University. Okay, wow. So you shook up your environment and you wanted to completely change it after that. You you had the inspiration to think, okay, I'm not actually trapped in this path. I can change something if it's not making me happy. Yeah, what a breakthrough. Exactly. And and you know, when I went there, it was it's, it was like night and day. I was I took the same engineering class in Montreal at Concordia University. I was failing that class at Queens. And I ended up getting a B plus in that class. And that was another moment of inspiration that the environment is very important. Sometimes it's not your skill that's the problem. Sometimes it's the environment. And the environment over there was more aligned to my intrinsic needs of wanting freedom of relatedness Hmm. being around people who are more like-minded there were also you know there was a larger middle eastern community over there so you know it, it kind of filled that homesickness that i had and it allowed me to flourish wow yeah environment is everything and i guess it comes back to to understanding yourself and learning those lessons about what makes you happy and which environment you thrive most in like you said so you know you're a a city girl and I I would be overwhelmed like I need nature and silence and peace (laughs) and slow pace so like everyone is different it just shows yeah like you can't just try and squeeze yourself into this box and there's no right or wrong way you've just got to like figure it out what works for you yeah absolutely so it was it a domino effect then so you found your environment and then everything else just started to kind of fall into place It was like peeling the layers of an onion. Mm -hmm. You know, the first, you know, layer that I peeled was, I hate what I'm studying. I hate what I'm doing. And I can't keep doing that. Um, And then the second layer that I peeled going into that doctor's office is the realization that maybe I'm overpleasing everyone around me, not knowing what it is that I want. and, And instead of just listening to myself and trusting myself, I was taking classes and doing things that would impress people. And I got to find something that I truly love rather than what other other people think is good for me. That's when I started making progress. And even then, you know, it was still, um, it was still extremely tough for me because these are like childhood things that are ingrained. There was still that element in me. And this is why I entered management consulting that I, that I want to make a ton of money, that that's the only way to be successful, that's all that matters in life. As long as you have a good job, you know, as long as you're making a ton of money, then you're successful. And it took me a while to realize that that's not the definition of success. Right. Definition of success is, is, is based on what you want and what you love. And in order to get that fulfillment, you need to utilize your gifts and your gifts are the the things that come to you easily and naturally and that you enjoy doing. I call it, you know, your ikigi, Japanese concept of finding your being is the intersection of what you love, what you good at, what you're good at and what the world needs. Because when I was in management consulting, I was doing what I was good at in a sense. There were things I loved and I didn't love. I wasn't utilizing 100% of my potential or what came naturally to me. But the biggest thing for me was it, it didn't feel to me that this is what the world needed. 
what I was meant to do to help others. Yeah. And this was your first job straight from graduation, right? You were really successful straight out of school and you landed this kind of dream role on paper, right? So the fact that you then realized that um, it's you still hadn't quite reached that, that dream, it's interesting. To me, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, big five. I mean, yeah. being a non-Canadian and landing that as my first job in Canada, that is like, quote unquote, the Canadian dream. I just achieved the Canadian dream. But then I realized that the definition of Canadian dream you know, is, is not that Mm. it's, it's not doing something that you don't, where you don't feel whole. Right. Yeah. Career fulfillment is, is the goal. I think it's getting more and more clear to, to everyone. Um, especially this year as well, you know, infamous 2020, I feel like it's going to be in the history books, right? It's for career development as well as, as all the, you know, awful things that have happened, but, um, it's definitely been a pivotal year for, for reevaluation, right? And there's a lot of people that are looking at their careers now and thinking, I'm not happy and I'm not fulfilled and, you know, I'm doing this for the wrong reasons and maybe I should shake it up and do you even want to go back to, to life of before? You know, everyone's saying, you know, I want to go back to the way it was before. Do you though? Do Or do you want a new normal? Do you want to work from home more often now? You know, there's so many questions that have been thrown up in the air with careers. Um, yeah, and the fulfillment aspect you know, it's something that everyone's striving for, I think, especially now this year. Yes. And I think what makes it difficult, especially for people who went through my upbringing, is waiting too long to leave a situation that doesn't serve you, Mm. because you feel that you need to be grateful, and you're going to be judged. You're throwing away an amazing career and and, a great salary. And exactly. And in a way, I felt that I had to be grateful, making a six-figure salary and, and doing a job where it didn't make me feel whole. And it was too scary to make a change and leave. And I didn't know how to go about it, too. I didn't have a strategy to go about it. And until I got that strategy and that help from someone else, um, until I got that roadmap, that's when I was able to feel closer to whole. And then the thing that I want to tell people, too, is that you don't figure things out overnight. Um, no one is born knowing exactly what they want to do. It is an iterative process. However, I have to say this, is that you can definitely reduce the experimentation and the sacrifices and the pain that you go through in the journey if you get the right mentorship and help. Mm. It's really hard to see your own blind spots. You need an outsider to help you with that. And it's usually not your family or your parents. A lot of it is based on trying different things in order to know what suits you. And I think if I hadn't tried, you know, different things, then I wouldn't have come to all of these conclusions. Yeah, we, you know, you have those personality traits and you have those interests and then it's difficult sometimes to know what career that is meant for it's so difficult you know like I think there's such a common narrative out there where that people are just so easily find their passions you know like oh I've wanted to be a doctor I had a stethoscope around my neck when I was three and I've always wanted to be a doctor and now I'm a doctor it's like that's very rare I feel like it's just such a weird story that's told to us and I think it comes down to like I read this really interesting Forbes article where they were saying that we need to take the pressure off and it's not about finding your passion right because passions aren't found you have to develop them instead you know for some people that passion just isn't there you have to you know realize what makes you happy during the day and pay attention to what you spend your time on and your money on and consider the topics that you love to talk about and it's just such a a long process and I was so panicked even as recently as this year you know with everything going on and my my career was thrown up in the air and you just start to panic like I just really don't know what I'm supposed to be doing or what my passion is but yeah there's just so many it's so interesting that you could find somebody like yourself to just just pick that out and and show you what your potential is really and you can develop that. Yeah, I I steer away sometimes from the word passion although I would describe what I do 
as something that I'm passionate about. But, but I understand that it can be a triggering thing for people. But even for me, it was an incremental process where I said, okay, I have a sense that I'm really good at, you know, teaching. And so let me get into management consulting because it utilizes my ability to teach and break complicated concepts into simple terms. And it will, it will be something that I can monetize. Hmm. So I was really good at that. And I said, okay, this is the first step that will lead me to that goal. And this is the lowest hanging fruit. And let me try it and see how, what happens. And then as I went into that avenue, I discovered another thing. And it just got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. So yeah, I, I don't think that this is something that you can figure out overnight. Um, it, it's always beneficial to work with someone who can see your blind spots, even with myself. Recruiters and hiring managers had no idea what I wanted. I didn't know what I wanted because I was jack of all trades. And it took an outsider to pinpoint those blind spots. And a coach doesn't tell you what to do. They actually help you see it. And she helped me see it, which was even more powerful. Yeah. Because once I saw it, then I got the clarity. I was like, oh, my God, I've been looking for this answer my whole life. And you helped me see it. And I am 100% sure that's what I want to do. Mm. And once I found what I call my North Star then everything aligned. And now I spent time basically paying it forward and using all of these challenges and struggles and creating a holistic approach, taking into consideration what a person has gone through in their life, their skill sets, what comes naturally to them, what they enjoy, and what is in demand in the market and marrying them for them. Right. Yeah, that's so important, too, because it's all well and good to say, you know, oh, this is my passion and I, I'm going to do this. It's like, but, you know, what contribution are you bringing to the table? You know, what are you putting in the world? But is it, you know, can you monetize it? Can you make a living from it? There's, you know, is there an industry? Is there a gap there that you can, you know, really enter that industry? You know, there's so many elements to it. Yeah, I mean, I... I had a career coach for a little bit this year. It was so valuable. And um, the the first activity that he gave me was so simple and it was called 30 things. And he said to just write down 30 things that I want to do in my life. Could be anything, like, you know, anything I want to do, anything I want to be, and then everything that I want to have. So 30 things for each of those things, to do, to be, and to want. And that was so eye-opening because you get to like number four or five, and I struggle to think of anything else. It's just so interesting that we just don't have that self-reflection talent at all. And like what you were saying, it could sometimes take a third person to actually pick that apart and say, well, why are you struggling to think of more than five things of what you want to do or what does that mean? And then, yeah, it's really interesting how bad we are at, at really understanding ourselves. Yeah, I feel it always takes a third person. If you think about it, Sometimes even when I practice interview questions with my clients and I ask them, what is your greatest strength? And they struggle with that question. They'll give me something that is very simple, like, oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm really good at organizing. I'm like, no, it's a lot <laughs> deeper than that. And, some, and it always takes them asking their friends. I get them to ask their friends. I get them to ask others. And then we dig deep into it and I say, why, but why, but why, but why? <laughs> and then finally I get things like, you know what? I'm a great connector. I have this natural ability to connect with people. I bring people together. I'm like, yes, that's your greatest strength. Wow, yeah. And it takes a lot of digging. And then, of course, you need someone who does also the translation. Now that we know what your superpower is, how do we monetize it and map it to an actual occupation? That's the other trick. And then now that we know all of this, how do we market you to convince people? Mm. Well, this is, you know, we're at the end of December, we're at the end of this year, and people are going into 2021 and looking to potentially turn a new leaf or really dive deep into who they are and next steps in their career. So what would be your biggest advice? Obviously, apart from going to a career coach, if someone wanted to do just one thing themselves to, to really start the process, what do you think you would say to them? I would say... Stop listening to that myth 
that you need Canadian experience to find a job in Canada, especially in tech. <laughs> you got to believe in yourself because if you don't, if you don't feel secure about what it is that you offer, then no then you're not going to convince others. Right, yeah, that's so important. Really understand what you want and what you're looking for and what you need from people and what you can offer people. Yeah. Just really have that overall understanding of of everything about the career that you want and then go out in the world and and get it really, right? Absolutely. Amazing. So, where can people go to find you, find more about you, find more about what you do and what you offer? I always encourage people to go on my LinkedIn. Unfortunately, I do not have a website because I am a solo entrepreneur and I prefer spending more of my time coaching people rather than doing marketing. Mhm. Yeah. I also don't have a one size fit all strategy, so I like to have conversations with people and and first figure out if we're even a fit before we work together. I invite people to always have virtual coffees with me. I love talking to people and I love helping people out. Um it's always my pleasure to have a virtual coffee and and you know even sometimes um refer people to other resources. Um and um yeah, that's that's really the best way to find me through LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah, we will put the link in the show notes, so check that out and um oh, Nada, thank you so so much for your time. This has been so inspiring. No problem. Absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> and happy new year. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed new year and all of your dreams and and goals, you know, get accomplished. You too and you too everyone listening. <laughs>